You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. If you haven't yet, please go to timetogowild.com and find out a little bit more about the Go Wild app. Or you can just go to the Google Play Store and download the Go Wild app to your mobile device. Now, I know what you're thinking, what is Go Wild? Now, Go Wild is a social media platform similar to Facebook and Instagram that is focused, and I say focused, with the outdoors, hunting, camping, fishing. If it if it has to do with being outside, then you're going to find a community of like-minded individuals on the Go Wild social media platform. So it's pretty simple. Uh, download the app today at the Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps. Or for more information, visit timetogowild.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. So you finally just, for the first time in your life, correct, went ice fishing? Correct. And when you lived in Missouri, did you just never have the opportunity, or in Virginia for that matter, or was it just never cold enough that you had enough ice that you could really go before? Yeah, never really cold enough to have enough ice to be able to go. Um, I remember when I was a kid in Missouri, the pond would always freeze over, but I never even thought about ice fishing for that matter. Um, until I moved out here that so many people do it. Um, and that's what, you know, obviously got me the exposure to it and be able to do it. Yeah. That's even strange for me because as a Midwestern guy, I don't feel like when I think of ice fishing, like the mountainous region or like out West is not what I think of. What I think of for ice fishing is always like North, Northern Midwest, like the Plain States, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, even up into Canada. Yeah, you think of the, yeah, the Canadian border states, basically. You know, that's where you think of ice fishing when you think of it. And that's why when I got out here, it was interesting to see how many people actually ice fish out here. Do they have a really strong culture? Uh, like? Yeah, it's it's a pretty strong culture, surprisingly. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, I mean, what kind of species do you guys have to be able to chase? I mean, it varies on kind of what lake or what reservoir you go to. Uh, so, for example, the reservoir that we went to was cutthroats, rainbows, and tiger trout, as well as a non-native species they called chub. Um, so those were the the three target species was the trout species. Um, the chubs are basically a kill on site, so if you catch them, you got to kill them. Uh, you can't release them. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get that invasive chub out of the reservoir. So they started stocking um, more tigers, cutthroats, and rainbows. And I think they won't stock anything less than 11 inches, if I remember correctly. Aren't those trout invasive, though, too? They're just favorable invasives? Yeah, they're just more, a more favorable invasive um, compared to a chub. And then you can go to some other reservoirs where you could go for walleye, uh, lake trout, some bigger species as well. Um, you know, obviously where we went was a pretty small reservoir in general, and it was actually pretty low uh, water level-wise um, compared to what it has historically been. Uh, we were, I don't know, a couple hundred yards off the bank and was only in 14 feet of water. So do those types of lakes and reservoirs, do they typically follow the, the terrain, meaning that, like, 
if you're close to shore, you'd imagine it getting really kind of shallow and then it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper until you would get to what would technically be like the valley that's of the mountains that's full of water. So it just kind of gets deeper until you get to the middle of the lake or the reservoir more or less. Yeah. And then it starts climbing up the other side. Yeah. Most all of these reservoirs out here are actually for uh, water for human consumption and use basically because we're so limited on water that they take and they will dam up some of these larger drainages to form a reservoir so they can have water for the Salt Lake Valley or whatever valley you might be in. So that's basically what a lot of these reservoirs are for. Um, so there's no swimming in them. A lot of them are no motorized boats, um, but some of them are, um, depending on where you're at in the state. Huh. So tell me about the ice fishing trip itself. Yeah, a group of guys from work. There was uh, seven of us total, so we took two fishing shacks, I guess you would call them. I don't know what you call them. The big giant pop-up blinds, basically. Yep. Um, so there was a group of four of us in one uh, that was in a five-man blind, and there was a group of three in a four-man. Um, and we went up, and they had uh, two guys basically had most all of the gear. Um it was one guy's kind of family fishing spot that they had fished in most of their life that we went with. So he kind of coordinated the whole trip and got out there and they had, uh, both of them had battery operated augers. So it was basically just an attachment for a drill. Um, the ice ended up being, it was about nine inches thick. Um, so again, for me going out there the first time, this is all a new learning experience to me. Uh, so it was pretty interesting to see, you know, popping up the blind, staking it down into the ice you know, then covering the skirt with a little bit of snow to keep the wind out. Um, and then once you got in, you know, having your holes in there and, and setting up, it was actually a, a really interesting, you know, setup to me. We ended up, uh, we caught quite a few fish. Um, for the most part, we jigging. Again, I said we were 13 feet of water, and it seemed like there may have been some vegetation on, like, the bottom foot, basically. I ended up jigging about two and a half feet off the bottom uh, pretty much all day and I ended up catching 19 cutthroats uh, which was the most anybody caught the next closest person caught about seven so I think between the you know the two tents basically we caught 40 something fish how many of you guys are allowed to keep out there is there a limit on them um yeah that particular reservoir if I remember correctly you could keep two cutthroats uh, and then two rainbows, and then obviously it was unlimited chubs. I think the tigers you may even had to throw back, or there was a slot for them. But for pretty much everything, there was a slot limit, and I think that limit was from like 14 to 16 inches you had to throw back. Uh, you could keep two below the slot or one above and one below the slot, if I remember correctly. We were just catch and release, um, so we were just up there having a good time. Gotcha. Yeah, it sounds like a good time. Did you guys use uh, natural baits or uh, like larva or whatever you minnows, anything like that, or did you guys use all plastic or like flies? It varied. Um, some of the guys were jigging with plastic baits. Um, some of them were jigging with uh, wax worms or meal worms, uh, and then some were just using like a third of night crawler, basically, and just putting it on there and jigging with it as well. Um, so it kind of varied depending on you know what blind and who was catching what. But, I mean, it seemed like everything caught fish. It didn't really matter what it was. It just seemed like, you know, that 11 to 13-inch cutthroats, there was a lot of them in there apparently because that's pretty much all we caught was everything in that 11 to 13-inch. 
which is pretty much the stock size. So a lot of that year class being freshly caught. Yeah, that would that would be my guess because, like I said, they don't stock anything less than that eleven. Um, so for the most part, you would imagine that that's all the that stocking class for that year, basically, uh, which is that eleven to thirteen range, which made sense. Um, but I'm sure you know we could find some places where we could have got into. If we could have got maybe to a little bit deeper water, we could probably could have found some bigger fish. Well, it's also possible, too, depending on what their stocking plan is, they might assume that a large percentage of those fish that they stock are going to get taken out that year. And that the few that do make it through to the 14-inch size, then they're going to protect them so they get, you know, much, much bigger, with a few inches bigger. And then they just keep stocking that same size that they envisioned most of the fish being taken out of. Yeah, so if you kind of look at the the slot limit that they had laid out for that particular reservoir, you know, you could keep two under that slot limit, which was probably the that year's stock that they put into that reservoir, and then they protected them basically in the second year that that fish would be in that reservoir, and then in that fish's third year, you could only take one in above that slot limit basically. So that's kind of what they were doing was they were pretty much overstocking would be my guess is they are overstocking um, knowing that people are going to pull more fish out in that first year and then they're protected that size range is protected the second year and then you're only allowed one in the third year Mm -hmm. yep well i'm glad you liked it and we'll have to see if it becomes one of those things that you start getting hooked on because then we could probably do a whole yeah. podcast on getting you set up with exactly what kind of gear you want. Are you just going to go after cutthroats? Are you going to start going after walleyes or pike or anything else in those other lakes? And Yeah, that's what I'm, I've been looking at it. You know, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it a lot. It was a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, I started looking at rods, uh, just kind of starting out basic. You know, I really don't like using other people's rods. It's just a personal preference. Um, so I looked at, you know, like some light medium, so ultra light rods, you know, cause like with those cutthroats, we didn't need a whole lot, but obviously if we go after the lake trout or, or something bigger, I'm going to need a heavier rod. So I just started looking a little bit, you know, may pick up a rod or two to start with, um, and see how that goes. And then, you know, work my way towards a sled and auger and a fish shack or whatever they call them. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And that wasn't the only trip that you went on. You also went seeking deer hunting in Virginia, correct? Yes. Yeah, so just a a few days, I guess, prior to going ice fishing, um, I went to Virginia, the eastern shore of Virginia. Um, It's called the Delmarva Peninsula. It stands for Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. It's the very southern end of that peninsula is in Virginia. It's actually a national wildlife refuge. And they have a a non-native Sika deer or Japanese deer. It's actually a closely related to an elk so it's more like an elk than an actual deer but most people call them seek a deer um i think in the 70s if i remember correctly there was somebody turned them loose on this island basically and that's kind of how the population started so pretty much every year since i started working in virginia there's been a you know a group of guys that go out on this shore and hunt them every year um, typically one or two trips a year they go out and hunt them um, and it can vary on you know what time of year we go or you know how many of us go and is it always in virginia that you guys go yeah we always go in virginia um just because we're pretty familiar i say we the guys that i've always went with are real familiar with that particular area 
Um, and most of them are Virginia residents, so it's cheaper for them to go to Virginia than to pay um, to go to Maryland. And Maryland handles handles their Sika deer a little bit different. Um, so in Virginia, the the deer is strictly on a national wildlife refuge, so it's all public land. Whereas in when they get into Maryland, you get them onto private and public land as well. And Maryland actually manages that species more than Virginia. Virginia's kind of, because it's on a public land and it's a national wildlife refuge, they kind of have to manage as it's a non-native invasive species. So kind of not necessarily unlimited hunting, but they're more liberal with their seasons because they're a non-native. And that's kind of part of the, the policy of the Fish and Wildlife Service is to manage for that. Whereas when they're in Maryland, because they're on public land, you know, and private land, then they can kind of fall on the Maryland DWR and they kind of manage them basically. Huh. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that you get basically like a single population or like a network of populations of those animals. And just depending on where the imaginary line is drawn, that makes a huge difference on how the States decide to, or how they are managed in general. Yeah. So like a lot of the times you see the, you know, the bigger stags, um, they're stags and hinds or stags and cows, depending on who you talk to. A lot of the bigger stags come from the Maryland side because they're managed a little more. Um, and because they get to private land, they can feed them on private land. So that helps them a little bit where we hunt them in Virginia. They're in some nasty, swampy, low lying terrain where there's really not a whole lot of good forage for them. And I think that's part of the reason, like, some of the deer we kill are a lot smaller compared to, you know, 15 or 20 miles north. There can be a big difference in the size of a stag. And and I, that's just got to be, to me, thinking about it biologically, that's kind of be the biggest reason for it. So when you say, you know, bigger or smaller, size-wise, what are we dealing with here? I mean, how big are these deer body size compared to whitetails? What is their, are their antlers more similar to elk in terms of how they look? How big do they get? So a good a good stag would weigh in 64 pounds dress to maybe 70 pounds dress would be a really big stag. A fawn that you'll kill, I killed a fawn this year that was 21 pounds dressed. So you compare that to a whitetail, you know, you're going to be killing a, you know, an 80 pound fawn in November whitetail hunting. So that's a huge, that'd be a good size stag in Sika terms. So they're drastically smaller than your whitetail deer. I mean, an average deer that we kill out there would be uh, probably 45 to 52 pounds is typically our average that we would kill out there. And again, that's dressed. And then antler-wise, they're a lot more like an elk. So a good stag would be a three by three or a six point. Um, would have So he would have fronts um, about an inch up his base, and then he would branch at the top basically. And that would be a good stag. I think the group that I've hunted with always in the, I want to say they've hunted out there for like 11 years now. They've only killed one three by three stag and the guy ended up getting it full body mounted. Um, and apparently it was a really good stag, had good fronts and good forks on top. Um, so, you know, most of what we kill are antler wise are small spikes or maybe starting to branch at the top. So my guess is that is a year and a half old spike or a two and a half year old spike. And do you think that's mainly because kind of, as you were alluding to earlier, 
the Sika deer in Virginia just get hunted more heavily and there's less of a management basis around their size? Yeah, that as long as with the with the forage of it. You know, they're in a pretty harsh environment. There's not a whole lot of forage there for them for the most part. You know, in some of the the low pine areas that you have up there, you can find some, some greenbrier, some smilax, um, some persimmon trees, and maybe a couple oak trees throughout there. But for the most part, there's really not a whole lot out there that they're going to forage on um, when you think about it compared to like a whitetail. There's no agriculture in that part because it's a national wildlife refuge. You know, obviously no baiting. So it's the the food there to help them grow the genetics that they might in Maryland, which is just, again, I think it's 13 or 14 miles north of there. It's just You just don't have that ability where when you get up into the Maryland side, um, you know, they're allowed to feed if it's on private land. So then that helps the helps the deer get a little bit more nutrition for it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like, are you going to shoot your deer in northern Wisconsin out in the, the big national forest? Or are you going to shoot it down the southern part of the state in cropland? Not, yeah, over, this... not a huge amount of distance mileage-wise, but drastic difference in the amount of, you know, quality habitat. It's really weird because the distance seems so close to me. You know, when you're talking about something like Wisconsin or most states, you're looking at, you know, 60 to 120 miles difference can have the effect of a deer. With this, we're looking at, you know, 10 to 20 miles basically has that big of an impact on the size of the deer that can come out of there, the size of the stag that can come out of there. And is there any whitetails in there too, or is it all stags? There's, there's a few whitetail mixed in. Um, so that kind of plays into when we go, um, used to this season used to run beyond whitetail season. So whitetail season would end in like the end of January or early February. And we used to go all the way into February. So whitetail season would be closed, but Sika deer season would still be open. So you'd have to be really aware as to what you were shooting um, you know, there was a lot of instances where people would accidentally shoot a whitetail when they were out of season. Uh, so now they've really cut back the season and actually the weekend we went was the last week of the season. So there are a few whitetail, but there's not a lot. And that's kind of the, the ground that they were trying to depopulate the Sika deer from is that they're competing for forage for the native whitetail species even though when you look at kind of their numbers that they give you, they kind of have an orientation you have to take. I think the whitetail population was really low. Um, I can't even remember the number off the top of my head. It was hundreds, maybe 200, 250 whitetails, they say, is on that National Wildlife Refuge compared to, you know, the invasive Sika deer, which they say was like 500 or something like that. So then if they're trying to depopulate that area, do they pretty much give you guys like as many tags as you want? So you're allowed five per day, no more than two stags. So we've, again, the group I've been hunting with has been doing this for like 11 years and they've, nobody has ever killed five in a day. No one person has ever killed five in a day. Uh, but I think a couple people have killed two or three in a day. So, you know, there's a potential to be able to do it. Um, but they're pretty liberal with the tags on what you get. So, I mean, we went with basically there was a total of, I think, eight people that went with us. So, you know, that's 40 deer a day basically if 
everybody killed out their limit. So that's a, a pretty liberal number considering what they say is actually on the island. Oh, yeah, for sure. You, what did you say, 500? They think there are yeah. that portion of it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what they said was around 500. Does the population you know, seem we'll, to be growing or shrinking at all? Or is it pretty much staying pretty level as far as you were aware? For all I know, it could be staying pretty level just by the number of deer that we've seen. We've seen more deer this year than we've probably seen the last three or four years. Um, so a lot of that also has to do with like weather um, is pretty dependent on if they allow you to hunt certain parts of that refuge. Cause like if you have a hurricane and it can wash out part of the refuge, it may just close the refuge down or, you know, like right now we're in a government shutdown. So theoretically they could, if the season was open during that time, that refuge would be shut down. Those deer would be that much more likely to make it to next year to be recruited to that population. Right. So what time of year do you guys typically go? What's the earliest you've gone? What's the latest you go? And how does that play in terms of what seasons are available in terms of weapon? So the season runs, they have a early archery season, which runs from like September 1st or September 15th through like November 17th, which is the start of the firearm season. So that time is archery only through the entire refuge once firearm season starts they kind of divide the refuge up into three zones basically so they have the northern zone which is firearms only then they have kind of a zone around the visitor center the walking trails kind of the area where the public visits a lot and that is archery only all year round and then they have a southern firearm zone and so you can hunt archery all year, but after November 17th, you can only go into the archery only zone, which is around the public area. Basically, if you wanted to hunt with a firearm, you'd have to hunt the North zone or the South zone after that November 17th through like December 15th or 16th, I think we've went, I've went archery hunting form once we went in early September I think I think it was like the first weekend they opened so used to you had to draw a zone to be able to hunt now they limit it to total number of hunters on the refuge at a given time and I think it's like 125 hunters are allowed on the refuge at any given time so what makes that nice is that it's pretty easy to go out there because a lot of I don't think I've ever seen 125 hunters out there so pretty much you can go out there anytime you want and you're pretty much guaranteed a spot to hunt basically. And so in the early archery season, you know, they're bugling, they're like elk. So they're out there bugling. Um, you know, they don't have the kind of chuckle, the deep, they're more of a high pitched kind of a whistle than a, a you know, a low growl or a chuckle that an a elk would have Rocky mountain elk. So it's fun to hunt them in that because you can hear them. But the downfall of that is because it's so early that most all this is a marshland that the mosquitoes are absolutely horrible. I mean, they're just swarms and swarms of mosquitoes and it makes it so miserable to try and hunt them. You know, even from a tree, you know, September and early September in Virginia, you can easily hit 90 degrees pretty quick. So that that's the worst part about it. Yeah, I could, of, I could imagine just based on the swamps out here and then. I mean, that place, just looking at it on the map, I'm sure it's 
definitely not any better. I don't know if they're better or worse kind of around the ocean. But. Yeah, the ocean breeze helps a little bit, but not much. I mean, most all that's a stagnant kind of swamp water, so you get just, just an absolute ton of mosquitoes. So that's why for the most part, most everything we've done out there is a firearm season. Um, and typically we've tried to go like late November, December. Uh, like I said, we've even hunted all the way up into February before when they allowed that February season. I think it was like Martin Luther King Jr. days, kind of the, the day we used to always set aside to go hunting. So that was when we always would go. But since they moved the season back, you know, we kind of go that last week of season, which is the second week of December now. And that's just obviously for the weather reasons, you know, we're going to be out there. It's going to be cooler. So you don't have to worry about sweating. The mosquitoes are going to be a lot less. You don't have to deal with that, you know, but the trade off for that is you don't know what you're going to get. One year we were out there and it just poured rain all three days. And it was miserable hunting in the rain. Cause it was like 41 degrees and raining, you know, this time it was, you know, mid forties, but the first day the wind was just howling like 30 miles an hour. Um, so it made it a little rough the first day, but the second day ended up being a really nice day for us. Gotcha. So when you guys go as a group, are you hunting as a group? Are you using the advantage of basically teaming up or are you just kind of staying at the same parking lot and just kind of all branching out and going your separate ways? It varies depending on the time we go. Um, you know, most of the time we kind of all go to the same general area. Um, sometimes we may team up and do kind of like deer drives, but not really. So basically we'll take, you know, two or three guys and we'll just kind of walk in a line and try to jump them up like rabbits. Um, sometimes we'll go to areas where we know we've always seen deer and we may hunt like a, an island in the marsh, basically, where there's always good sign. So we'll send somebody out to that island and they'll sit the first four or five hours of daylight and then come back for lunch and then we'll go back out and do it again you know so it really varies depending on kind of what the person wants to do how they want to hunt you know some people are new so you know they may want to still hunt so then they'll go off on their own and they'll just still hunt some of these small islands basically and then sometimes like I said you know we may get two or three guys and just walk through a, a small patch of uh, myrtles basically and see if we can find anything in the myrtles um, see if we can jump shoot them basically uh, because they're so small they're really like a, a really large rabbit so you know sometimes that's the way we hunt them so when you guys do that kind of a strategy then are you basically going scope free just almost like a like a bird barrel and are you using like buckshot or slugs or rifles what are you guys using yeah, we're running shotguns with buckshot pretty much all the time. Um, a lot of this area is pretty thick. You Even in, in some of the pine stands, uh, there's just it's so thick you can't see 40, 50 yards. Um, if you get out in some of the water impoundments in some of the areas, you know, you can see two or 300 yards. And I think they even allow muzzle loaders um, during parts of that. So some people will hunt basically over these large water impoundments with muzzle loaders to be able to reach out and shoot one of these at, you know, 175 yards or so. But pretty much every time I've ever been, we've hunted with double up buck um, and just uh, short, we try to go as short shotguns as possible because it is so thick um, that if you're in there, you know, 
you may have one small shooting lane to be able to shoot this deer in. And if you're dealing with a 28 or a 30 inch shotgun, you know, you're not going to actually be able to get the gun up to your shoulder without it hitting some type of brush. Cause a lot of their trails are, you know, two foot wide and two foot tall. So sometimes, you know, you're on your hands and knees crawling down a Sika trail, trying to find an opening that this trail may take you to, or may take you by a, an old tree that's fell over or something like that. So, you know, a lot of times you're in these really small spaces. That sounds like it would create some real issues trying to drag them out. It, it really does. And that's the good thing about them being so small is, you know, I think the longest drag we had this year was, I may have been close to a mile. Um, and luckily it was through some easy stuff, but I've been on some where I actually killed a doe in a white tail doe in one spot. And it was the worst drag I've ever had in my life to drag her out of there because I was actually at times dragging her and she was two feet off the ground basically. So I, she wasn't even on the ground because it was so thick. I was dragging her up over stuff and it was, it was miserable. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't sound so fun. Um, and that's part of the refuge regulations is you have to bring it to the check station whole because they want so much data off of it. Like they want the weight of it. Um, the jawbone out of it. Uh, they want to. They ask a couple questions about the hooves. So you have to bring the deer out whole. Whereas if you could quarter it up, it would be so nice to take a, a pack frame in there, even just a regular backpack, depending on the size of the deer, and be able to quarter that deer up in the field and pack it out. Because you're talking a 40-pound deer dressed, you quarter that down, and you're dealing with you know maybe 24 pounds of meat. So it'd make a really easy pack out compared to a drag out because there are some dunes and stuff you can walk on or some old logging trails that you can get on a walk out of, which would make it really nice. Uh, but they just don't allow that. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask about if you were able to quarter them out. Cause I mean, then you'd be like you said, it'd be like carrying a Turkey out as opposed to a deer. Oh, I wish. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, you know, like I use a kind of an upland game vest when I go, you know, I could literally probably just quarter like that small deer I shot. I could have quartered it and stuck it in the, the back pocket of my game vest and walked out with it and it would have been so much easier although i bet if you had like a like a western day pack like you'd be borderline if you had a smaller one you'd probably be able to throw the whole thing on and strap it down it you'd probably be catching on yeah, everything I'm, that'd be the only other issue well but if you have a good frame you can kind of pick your way out where you don't have to walk through a lot of that stuff uh, you know when we're dragging deer we drag for basically the shortest distance Whereas if we could put it on a frame pack or something like that, you could take the extra half mile and walk out easily um, because it's going to be on your back and it's going to be a lot easier carry compared to dragging that thing through the Dagobah system, as we call it. That's honestly what it reminds us of is if you watch Star Wars where Yoda lives is the Dagobah system. That is pretty much what it's like. You know, there's places of it where it's just so thick you can't, can't see 10 feet in front of you and your feet are always in water so we hunt with you know knee boots basically is there ever a need for like hip boots or waders is it pretty shallow i guess the whole way through for the most part so it's a the national wildlife refuge is actually a a duck resting area so for the most part they try to keep that water like less than 20 inches and most of your rubber boots are 16 to 17 inches. So there are some places where it can get deeper than your rubber boots. But for the most part, you know, rubber boots will suffice. Uh, there was a guy this year, 
we weren't 20 yards from the truck opening day where first day we went out and he stepped over and his flooded his whole boot and so he had to hunt the rest of the day with wet socks and a wet boot <laughs> so he was he was pretty miserable by the end of the day yeah it seems like we get some of those types of spots like even around here where it's like you got to go through some marsh and it's like for whatever reason just getting the first 20 yards away from the road is the deepest water you'll go through but once you get past that then you're good yeah we've had guys try to hunt from from waders um and a lot of times, you know, if we're still hunting or if we're tree stand hunting, it's sometimes the best way to go because you can cross some of them deeper areas where most people won't go to get to. Um, you know, there's a couple canals and, and levees that are only maybe nine feet wide that I know guys have put kayaks in and literally just not even taken a paddle, pushed themselves from one side to the other and then drug the kayak up on the bank to be able to hunt that area because it's really the only way you can hunt that area without walking two miles, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So are the trees big enough that you can put stands in on some of those islands, or are they mostly kind of shrubby or smaller? It depends on the kind of the area you're in, because there are some kind of low pine areas where there's some pine trees that you can easily hunt, but then there are some areas that you get into where there's not a tree above eight feet and it's just all just a tangled mess of myrtles basically um, so it really depends on you know where you're wanting to hunt you know when we bow hunted we obviously hunted a different area because we wanted to be able to hunt from tree stands or from saddles so we kind of scouted a lot looking for persimmon trees or for crossings where they came you know narrow points in the marsh where it would basically pinch them down through a small stretch of timber before they could get to another area in the marsh so there's definitely places where you can you can hunt from a tree stand, but there's a lot of places where you can't. A lot of people just hunt from the ground. Uh, there's, you'll see a lot of five-gallon buckets that people will carry out there and then just leave, um, or milk crates. Gotcha. Now, I remember reading about Sika deer hunting, and there was guys that were using calls. Do you guys ever bring any calls, like just to coax anything in the last 30 yards or whatever, if, if it can hear you and you can't see it? When... When I went bow hunting, we tried calling. We tried calling similar to an elk, um, but I do know there are a few guys who swear by calling them in because uh, a lot of times, depending on where you're at, it's it's pretty much all water, so there's you know three to four inches of water across pretty much most of it. So you can hear them walking or running through the water, and that's what a lot of guys do is they'll you know they'll basically still hunt through these you know small marshy areas until they hear one. And then they'll start calling to it. And I know there's some guys that had some really good success and killed some pretty good stags by calling them, you know, to wherever they were at, out of the frag, um, to an opening, something like that. With all that water, how do you tell what sign is fresh and what's not? Do you just have to go into areas it, where you find higher ground and you, you can start seeing some tracks or do you see rubs? Yeah, or? it's really, it's really hard in the water because there's, you know, there's no, I mean, you can look at the bottom and see tracks. But were those tracks made last night or were they made three weeks ago? You know, there's really no way to tell. So a lot of times because it's sandy in most of these small islands, you can get up on the island and then you can see where the sand has been kicked up. So you can see kind of the fresh, wet sand that's been kicked up and you can kind of see how well it's dried to tell you how fresh the sign is. Okay. So then once you guys... And then they'll, they'll have wallows similar to uh, an elk. 
So you may find a small wet spot, like on the edge of an island, that'll be, I don't know, maybe three foot in diameter, and it'll be a, a small wallow. And then somewhere close by, you'll see a couple rubs and things like that because they will wallow similar to a to an elk. So that's a good a good way to find fresh shine is if you can find a wallow, basically. Gotcha. So when you guys go out and you basically come back and you have however many deer you're going to come back with, whether it's three or whether you guys shoot 10 of them or whatever it is, how good is the table fare on those things? It, it's kind of like, um, mule deer and kind of some, you hear some people say they're pretty sagey and you hear people, some say they're really good. That's kind of like what it is to me. You know, it really depends on the year. Like if it was a wetter year where they had better forage, they're going to be a little bit better. But if it's a, a dry year and there's not a whole lot of forage, they're going to be kind of a, a more gamey taste. So to me, they kind of, they're between like a sage mule deer and a whitetail for the most part. Um, they're not quite as good as like an elk or a whitetail, but they kind of fall between that bad mule deer and a good whitetail range. Huh. Okay. Yeah, because the only mule deer that I have to kind of, I guess, go off of is the one that I shot, which... To me, I couldn't tell any difference at all between that and the whitetail. So I must have had a good one. Yeah, and so it, it really varies um, with mule deer on whether it's a wet year and they ate a lot of forbs, um, so they're going to be a lot better tasting, or if it's a dry year and most of their forage was basically sagebrush, so they had that real strong, sagey taste. Okay. Now, I can't remember if you told me this earlier or not, but when the seeker deer initially came to that area, I, mean, I guess what keeps them in that small area and where did they initially come from and how long ago did they get established in that area? So if I remember right, it was like the 70s, 1970s. Um, some guy had them brought in and there was only seven individuals um, at that 1970 time frame. And that's basically what established this whole population in the region was seven individuals and turned them loose on this island and they just kind of expanded from there. Uh, what keeps them on that island? I really don't know because, you know, it's a narrow pen. The island we hunt is kind of the tail end of the narrow peninsula that comes from Maryland. But just, I don't know, a half mile west of that is another island called Shinkatigue Island. And I have, for whatever reason, I have no idea why they won't just cross that half mile straight basically to get to the other island it's like they like water but they don't like to swim in the water maybe i don't know it's it's really interesting we've often wondered why they've never crossed over to the other island so i don't know if if they just don't like to swim but they like to basically keep their feet wet that they haven't expanded from this island so it's a it's real interesting kind of the whole you know that whole population including what was in maryland derived from seven individuals basically um so when you look at the genetic difference between what we kill in virginia compared to what they kill in maryland theoretically that's all the same seven individuals that originally started all this so that's what's so interesting to me about it and how different are they from i guess whatever they originated from was it japan that they came from or was it yeah i'm guessing they're a because it's a seek is a japanese um, elk species and I actually think there's 
like somewhere like 37 subspecies of cica deer in the asia japan area um so i obviously don't know which subspecies they brought over here but they're considerably smaller um, body size and antler size like a good stag that we would kill out here would have like a a main beam length of say a, a big three point would have like a 15 inch main beam length you know some of the ones they kill up in maryland can have like a 20 to 25 inch main beam length and then some of the ones you see like online or in asia and stuff like that could have a 30 plus inch main beam length so there's a, a drastic difference kind of in what's killed in maryland what's killed in virginia and the subspecies or the species that's found in its natural habitat gotcha so for people that would maybe want to try this i mean do you consider this a pretty viable doable fun diy option or do you think it's a little bit over the top for somebody who wants to do a bucket list type hunt i mean it it's easily doable um you know it's public land the if you're a virginia resident you know it's really easy for you because the actual seca tag doesn't cost you anything extra um, they actually use a what's called a depop tag so a depopulation tag for the seca deer so they give you those tags for free so if you you have to buy your virginia hunting license so even if you're somebody from maryland or north carolina west virginia who hunts in virginia it would be really easy for you because you're already buying your Virginia deer tag, um, non-resident deer license, basically. So then to go to that island and be able to hunt would be really easy. Um, you know, even somebody coming from out of state, you know, it's, again, it's public land. You could easily call the refuge manager um, or the hunt coordinator and talk to them and get some pretty good ideas on what areas of that to hunt from. And then, you know, once you're out there, you're obviously going to be looking for a much, much smaller deer and compared to whitetail sign, it's just, you know, if you see a rub that's two feet off the ground, a foot and a half off the ground, most people are going to look at that and be like, oh, that's a small whitetail, but that's a Sika deer. And so it's kind of a different scouting strategy, but I think it's something that most people could do pretty easy. Are you guys planning on going back to the same spot next year? Are you going to take a year off? Yeah, it's pretty much a a yearly tradition uh, for that group of guys. I didn't go last year um, because I was, I was out here, um, but I went back this year and I'll probably go back again next year. And what makes it nice for us is, I mean, obviously I got friends in the area, so it makes it nice to be able to stay with them. They can pick me up from the airport, things like that. And then we've got a buddy who owns a house um, on Chincoteague Island that we rent from him. So whereas like if you're staying in a hotel, you know, obviously, if you get a deer, it's going to be a little difficult to deal with the deer because they don't like you to um, skin your deer or process your deer on the refuge. So you have to take it off the refuge to be able to do it. Uh, and that's kind of where it pays off for us to have a, a rental house, basically, is we can take it to that house. We've even put up a little skinning pole in his backyard that we can skin the deer from because we go there year after year. Um, so it could be a little difficult for somebody to manage from that aspect, but it's really not like anything else. I mean, if you can if you can skin it in the bed of your truck, I mean, you're looking at a 35, 40 pound deer, basically, you could easily skin it in the bed of your truck and get it on ice in the bed of your truck and not have any major issues with it. Yeah. Yeah. The more you talk about it, I mean, it definitely seems feasible. It seems interesting. Might be one of those things I'll have to think about doing one of these years. It's a, it's a really fun hunt. I would like to spend more time up there in the rut during archery season and actually call one in 
just because you know the small it's a it's like elk hunting except for you're at like four feet elevation maybe so it's you don't have to go hiking up eight thousand feet nine thousand feet plus to go hunt an actual elk you're really low level most people don't know of seek a deer you know up until probably i would say five years ago most people have really never heard of them um you know unless they're in that delmarva peninsula eastern virginia dc area most people have never heard of them um i know meat eater has been out there a couple times um hunting with steve kendrott who's a colleague of mine works for the same agency and you know that's kind of really brought to light the seek a deer hunting aspect of it Do you think that that kind of exposure is going to make it a little bit more crowded? Or do you think for a lot of people it's just so much of a, an inconvenience to be able to go travel X number of miles to be able to do a hunt like that when they could, you know, alternatively go out west to hunt one of the bigger species? I think it's that. I mean, if you factor in, you know, if you look at dollar per pound, you're going to spend a lot of money to get very little meat if you go seek it hunting. Whereas you could spend the same amount of money, maybe a little bit more money to come out and hunt elk in Colorado. So I think that weighs into a lot of it. A lot of people don't want to travel. Like I travel from Salt Lake City to hunt a 40-pound deer, basically. You know, most people are not going to want to do that, especially from the, you know, the states that are further west. You know, I'm sure, like even from you, you know, coming from Minnesota, that's quite a trek to hunt a a 40-pound deer, whereas... I think people in maybe North Carolina, Virginia, D.C., Maryland, maybe parts of I've met some PA hunters out there before, you know, so that area that's relatively close where you could drive to, I think those people are going to be your people who are going to be more likely to do it than somebody from Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, somewhere like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the other thing, too, is that if you already have the Virginia tag, it's kind of like a combo two-in-one hunt if you have places you can hunt in the regular state of Virginia too for whitetails. Right. Which that's ultimately what we do. What we did, our plan was to hunt Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for seek a deer. Uh, but we actually did really well this year. So we only hunted Monday and Tuesday and we only actually hunted half a day on Tuesday. And then the other half of the day was basically cleaning our deer. And then on Wednesday we bailed out of there and drove south where one of the guys had got a couple of deer leases down there and you know i had to buy a whitetail tag to hunt seek a deer with so i had to buy my non-resident virginia hunting license with a deer tag so we were going to try to fill fill a whitetail tag while i was there as well so we went down there and did some deer drives in that area um, it's a pretty big area for dogs but we just did man drives um, on some of his leases and i think we ended up killing ended up killing four whitetail i didn't kill one obviously um, but some of the other guys that were there ended up killing them so well, I think I've asked about all the questions I can think of regarding seek a deer and that hunting experience. Do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, if you're if you're interested in it, there's some forms out there um, where there's some pretty good knowledge on it. Uh, you can do some Google searching and find a little bit about it. But just call your call the uh, hunt manager or call the somebody there at the refuge and talk to them a little bit. If you're going to hunt for a trophy. I would recommend looking at the Maryland side of it. There's actually some outfitters that run out of the Maryland side. Um, And like I said, that's where some of the bigger stags will end up coming from. Um, So you can find a lot more information if you look in the Maryland side through an outfitter compared to if you want to do a 
DIY public land, whether that be in Maryland or in Virginia, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, especially for somebody coming in new, um, trying to learn about it. So it's kind of depends on what you want to do. If you want to do that DIY or you want to do a, a paid outfitter. That'll do it for this episode. Make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation podcast network on Facebook and Instagram. Leave us a review on iTunes. And of course, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast feed wherever you normally download or stream podcasts. Thanks for listening.